Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the 343 Podcast, where we tirelessly work to elevate the level of discourse and practitionership here in American soccer. I'm your host, Gary Kleiben, and today I have a unique guest, 22-year-old professional player, Taylor Davila. He grew up here in Southern California, where he played most of his youth soccer at a top club, well-known club, Real SoCal. My brother, Brian Kleiben, and known of him from the very earliest of ages and had always wanted to bring him aboard our teams. And ultimately, Taylor agreed. And Brian ended up recruiting him to the LA Galaxy Academy, where he would subsequently become a pro and play for Galaxy 2 in the USL Championship for two seasons. And now he's currently playing under former Colombian World Cup veteran Wilmer Cabrera at Rio Grande Valley in Texas, again in the USL Championship. One of the things that we like to do here in our soccer family is work to help our players both on and off the field. And this is especially true if they ride with us as pro players. In the case of Taylor, he was interested and excited to learn about podcast hosting and production. So here he is. He didn't hesitate. He grabbed the opportunity to work with me and produce his first episode. You'll be hearing a lot more of him in the coming months as we work together towards making him a skilled content creator. Again, I'll repeat, because it's worth mentioning, our group here really believes in arming our players and friends with skills outside of soccer. Skills that will be invaluable once the playing career is over. And in this episode, Taylor is still finding his voice, but he's starting to get the hang of it as the episode rolls on. And the topic that he happened to choose is an interesting one. It's one we're all very familiar with. Pay to play. Yes, yes. Everyone has quite a bit to say about this topic, but I think there's some insights and angles here in this episode that are quite different than what's out there in the mainstream. I don't think the mainstream really has, well, I'll put it this way. I think the topic is still grossly misunderstood and misrepresented, and we need to look at it a little bit differently. I hope you enjoy this one, and I hope after listening, you'll send some messages of encouragement to Taylor as well. But first, please allow for a few words on what sponsors this episode. It's the best way to support the podcast, but more important, greatly improve your current soccer situation. First, if you're a coach, you've got to check out 343coaching.com. There are both free and premium programs for you there. The premium program in particular gives you full access to watch and listen to players, teams, and coaches in the real-life training environment. Now, what I mean by that is that the film and audio are not staged or scripted, such as what you would get at a conference or a typical course or video online. No, no, no. You get to be a legit fly on the wall and steady Brian, who basically helped pioneer a seismic shift in American soccer on how to develop youth players at every level. Among the many now professional players who were under his direct tutelage across many teams, one team in particular which he started at U10 and led through U19, really stands out. Over a handful of players on that team became professionals. It's incredible work. And the actual training of that team and those players is what you get to use to catapult your coaching. Okay, second, let's say you're not a coach, but you're a parent of a youth player looking for how to best put them on a proper path. The solution for you guys is at 343masterclass.com. And third, If you'd consider going to a private school for academics, either here in the States or in Europe, that also has an integrated soccer program, 
you should check out acceleratorschool.com. Critically important, the solutions for coaches, for parents, and for players are offered from people who have actually done the work and have an unprecedented track record in the United States. All right, I hope you enjoy this episode. We're just scratching the surface here, folks, but it's an important starting point for us to further expand down the line. Totally, T. So you're curious about pay-to-play. I'm curious what brought that to your mind. Okay. Um, I mean, you know, I played at Riasso Cal my whole life, and that was pay-to-play. There are clubs out there that are just profit-based. You know, they don't have a professional team. They're not bringing in money other than from young players who are paying to play on their teams. I think maybe I saw like a picture of Zlatan Ibrahimovic on Instagram or something, and I thought about how he was ragging on U.S. soccer, about how he had to pay for his kids to play soccer while he was here at the Galaxy. Got it. Because you know it's a big topic here in the States. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are so many amazing athletes in this country, and so little of them play soccer, and a bunch of them don't play soccer because it is pay-to-play. Like, I looked up these stats, the average cost per player, according to this website, soccerblade.com, is... $1,400 $1,400 a year per player. And that's, that's a lot of money where it can be as little as like 200 euros in Europe. Right. And I suspect that average, since it's across the entire country, right? There's a, a whole bunch of areas in the country that aren't that expensive. And what I mean by aren't that expensive, I mean relative to say Southern California, right? Because in Southern California where mm-hmm. you grew up and obviously where, where I've been my whole life, I mean, 1400 bucks a year is super cheap here in Southern California. Right here, we're talking about 2500 3500 $4,500, $6,000. And it also depends if you're on the boys or on the girls' side, because the girls' side is even more expensive. So anyways, I suspect that average is kind of, quote unquote, low, because, you know, the rest of the country is cheap with respect to the, the big market areas like ours. Yeah, it is low. And these are just club fees. It doesn't include travel expenses, doesn't include like tournament fees. Tournament fees are a huge part of that number. Yeah. So the number, it can jump all the way up to like 10,000. And it depends on the place. It depends on the level of your player. It's wild. So I'm curious what you also know about pay to play that you may have researched, but you may have already had some thoughts about it, or maybe you didn't. And you can admit this because for the audience here, you're still a young guy born in 2000. You're 22 years old, professional soccer player. You've been a pro for a couple of years now, a few years now. And so your headspace isn't necessarily in the business of youth soccer, even though your whole life was in youth soccer. And I know that your parents are heavily involved in youth soccer. So I actually am curious as to what you knew before you did any research at all. I kind of knew clubs like I was at Riasso Cal. We didn't have a professional team in any professional league to fund our youth team. So everyone had to pay. We had scholarships, of course, for kids and low-income families, but those were hard to get. I knew it was a struggle to get those scholarships for those families. And I also knew that one of the problems with youth soccer in America and with MLS clubs at the time was that we couldn't sell players. We had good young players, but we couldn't sell them. 
we couldn't make any money off them. And I didn't know why until I did some research. I always thought it had something to do with child labor laws, and it does, but there's more to it than that. So that's pretty much all that I knew. Got it. I think that's actually quite a bit for like a teenager, basically, to have that sort of awareness because you just play, right? You just play mm-hmm. and, and, you know, mom and or dad pay the fees. And that's the end of the story. As far as you're concerned, you may overhear as a teenager growing up because I did too, right? I kind of grew up obviously an older generation than you. Club soccer was just barely kind of getting started. Definitely wasn't what it is now. And so when my brother and I first got into club soccer and then my parents got a bill, my parents were like, what the fuck is this? We, we aren't paying a thousand dollars for you guys to play soccer. And I remember that conversation, you know, in the car ride coming home from a game, because apparently the team manager was going up to parents and saying, okay, you know, this is what it costs or something. I remember it like it was yesterday, Taylor. Um, but yeah, usually us kids aren't involved in those discussions. Something that you said was quite interesting when mentioning Ralph Soquel is that they didn't have a pro team and you kind of linked that somehow with the situation of pay to play. Maybe can you say a couple more words to that effect? And, and obviously I can expand like crazy if you have questions for me there. You know, Real Socal, our main rival was always the Galaxy. It was always the Galaxy. Galaxy would bring in all these players from all these different places, you know, the players they could play for free. And we're like, why, why are these guys good? Why are these guys better than us sometimes? And the main difference was they had a first team. They had a first team who was bringing in a lot of money, or I thought they were bringing in a lot of money, and they used that money to, to fund these academies. And that was really the only difference that I saw between my club and theirs was that they had a first team. They had a team in the MLS to pay for everything, and we, we didn't. We were the main, main attraction, really, as a U16, U18 team at Real Socal. Got it. So maybe if you guys had a pro team, you're suggesting, you're implying that things would be a little bit different with respect to pay to play there at Real SoCal. Maybe, maybe not the entire club because the club has 50, 60, 70, 100 teams, mm-hmm. but certainly some teams could be fully funded if the club had a professional team. Am I hearing you right? Yeah, that is what I'm suggesting. You know, there's a lot that goes into having a professional club, including like sponsors and all these kind of things. And I was reading in Europe, like smaller professional teams, they reach out to local businesses. They reach out to local potential sponsors. So it isn't just the profits that they're making from their team in the professional league. It's just using the name of the club, using the name, the team that's in playing professionally and using that to convince local sponsors and potential donors to invest really in their youth academies. Yeah. So a a few things, T, if you don't mind, and hopefully you can probe me further if you're curious. One is, it's quite interesting. It took me a while to, to realize this, that most professional football teams globally and here in the States as well, actually don't make a profit. They, they run at a loss. So a lot of the reason why one owns a professional football team is for ancillary things. It's not necessarily for it to generate operating cash flow or profits from that entity itself. It, you know, that the club can be used as a sort of leverage 
for the profitability of an owner's other businesses. And it also is used as an in or a pathway in to things like politics, government, smoozing with, with other high-profile business people in your sector, right? Let me paint a scenario for you. Let's say you're the LA Galaxy, right? Get on the phone. The owner gets on the phone with the mayor of Los Angeles. Hey, come to the game, you know, VIP box. Let's schmooze a little bit. It's an opportunity to have FaceTime with a public leader who has sway over laws and regulation and what you can and can't do in the city of Los Angeles. And you take it to the next level, right? The, maybe the governor of California, et cetera, et cetera. Or you do business dealings in the stadium. And it's just a great excuse to get into different circles, if that makes sense, T. So I'm circling all this back around to pay to play. And it's that, to suggest that it's not necessarily the profits that are funding the academies. It's simply the academies are part of the professional structure because the incentive is if you develop pro players, good pro players, then you can sell them or you don't actually have to acquire talent and pay for talent. You could just develop it in-house. So, so those are really the incentives. There's more incentives such as, hey, you get, get even further engaged with the community if you have a youth project associated with your pro club. But now to connect it to Real SoCal, okay? So let's suppose that Real SoCal had a pro team they would be incentivized to do the same thing, right? Is to develop pros for their pro team. And if that's what they need to do, that they can't have the barrier of pay to play filtering out talent from their community. They need to be able to get talent. And so they aren't going to erect that economic barrier. So pay to play is totally, you're right, is totally linked to the fact of whether you have a pro team or you don't have a pro team, because now it comes back to promotion and relegation, you see? Because if the United States had promotion and relegation, which the rest of the world does, not just Europe, like some people here conveniently say, the United States had promotion and relegation, then Real SoCal and all youth clubs would have an incentive to start a adult team or a semi-pro team or a pro team even if it starts in the fourth tier, right? Or the third tier, because naturally your business model shifts, yes? And if they have that pro team, then the pay to play gets lowered. Yeah, definitely. The promotion relegation comes into it, the incentive for the club to be able to move up to that top level, to be able to compete at a higher level and make more money. And it also comes down to, until recently, the MLS, accepted in compensation solidarity payments yeah this calls rstp the mls recently accepted rstp in 2019 and before then they couldn't make any money off players through training compensation and solidarity payments a player like chris durkin who plays at richmond kickers his whole life goes to dc united signs professionally and then is transferred for a million euros or a million dollars to first-tier Belgian side. Before this, before 2019, before MLS accepted RSTP, Richmond Kickers would not have been able to make any money off Chris Durkin, even though they trained him for 10-plus years. So not only is the promotion relegation, if it was there, 
And if a team like Riasakal had a pro team, it was just also recently that the RSTP was accepted and these youth teams, these local clubs, now they have an opportunity to make money off players. It's only just starting. It's relatively new. It's relatively young. That's also a way they can make money and use this money to give kids scholarships or reduce the, the amount that you need to pay to play. Yeah. RSTP stands for the regulations on the status and transfer of players. It's a section in, you know, some of the FIFA bylaws and within that they mentioned what's called training compensation and solidarity payments. And you are right, you know, up until 2019, MLS and U.S. soccer were always saying, oh, it's illegal, child labor laws, we can't do this, we can't do this, we can't do this. To be clear, what ended up happening is in 2018-ish uh, timeframe, 2019-ish timeframe, a whole bunch of MLS Academy talents left for Europe for free. You know, there were a lot of brave players, brave families, brave people that facilitated that. And there's a reason they all left, right? Because young players were not being played in the league, one. So, so it was kind of a death sentence to sign here with the league. Two, the league had a track record, and especially certain franchises had a track record of never transferring players overseas to Europe. Even if offers came in for players, they would torpedo deals. You know, if an offer came in for a talented young player who was 18, 19, 20, 21, whatever the age may be, and the offer was a million dollars, you know, the league would say 10 million, and then that would shut the deal down and and it'd be all over. And so there was a huge exodus of young 17, 18 year olds who left. And you know, many of them, Taylor, there's Mm -hmm. Rich Nedesma, there's Sebastian Soto, there's Alex Mendez, Ulises Yanez. This goes on and on and on, right? Chris Gloucester, there's the kid who, who there was a, a weird sort of battle between FC Dallas and Houston for like his rights somehow. And he's like, F this, I'm going to Denmark. Christian Capis is who I'm thinking of. Okay. Maybe a year before that happened or two, obviously Christian Pulisic had wild success at Dortmund and McKinney, who also left FC Dallas and did not sign for FC Dallas, left and was starting to have success overseas. So those guys kind of lit a torch and gave hope that that path can be accomplished. So this mass exodus occurred of 10, 12, 15 young MLS Academy prospects overseas, and they did not sign with the league. And the league said, holy crap, we have to change the way we do business. And one of the things that they did was started playing the young players, but that's a whole other topic. But the other thing is they started saying, hey, you know what? We are going to go after training compensation and solidarity payments because then that puts a price tag on players' heads, Taylor. And all of a sudden, you, I mean, you're technically a free player, but an overseas club will be like, well, wait a second. If you played in an MLS academy for three, four, five, six years, and we sign you as a pro for free, we're still going to have to owe the MLS franchise, whatever, a fee, 100K, 200K, 300K, 400K. So even though this young player never had a contract, was never under contract with an MLS franchise, there's still this price tag on your head. 
Anyways, that's the origin story. Taylor, there's so much to discuss there, but that's the origin story of why in 2019 specifically, MLS started accepting training compensation solidarity payments. Yeah, it took them this mass exodus of players to start changing the way they think about things. Also, U.S. soccer in the past, before 2018, before 2019, was against this RTSP. And after 2019, when the MLS accepted it and they talked about it with U.S. soccer, who are two different organizations, they have two different opinions, U.S. soccer is now, it still isn't for it. U.S. soccer is neutral to it. So that allows MLS to accept RSTP. That also means when local clubs, a club like Riazzo Cal, if they had a Weston McKinney who signs with Shaka, he played at Riazzo Cal for 10 years, Riazzo Cal would be owed training and compensation fees for this 10 years. They wouldn't go to U.S. soccer to get this money. They now have to go to FIFA. And FIFA deals with the entire world. They're covering body of soccer for the entire world. So this Riazzo Cal would have to hire lawyers. And this process can take years and years. And it makes it much more difficult to get this money for a player like Weston McKinney. Then if U.S. soccer was for RSCP instead of neutral. How convenient, Taylor, right? How convenient. I mean, you said U.S. soccer and, and MLS are two separate entities. And on paper, technically, that is true. But practically speaking, they're so intertwined with one another that they're basically operating, you know, one and the same. They both have the same sort of goals, vision. They're, they're totally aligned with one another. So kind of convenient that the youth clubs are still, for lack of a better word, screwed over while MLS is fine. They can do whatever they want. And quite interestingly, the posture of U.S. soccer changing from no, we can't do this to, ah, uh, you know what? Hands off. You guys deal with it. Yeah, very interesting, very convenient for them. And like you said, the MLS teams are benefiting a lot from this and the local teams aren't. Yeah. I think Richmond kickers, they went after the training and compensation fees for Chris Durkin. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they've got it yet. They hired a lawyer. They went to FIFA. It's taken years and they still don't have the money that they're Man, supposed to get. And Chris Durkin, for people who don't know, uh, was in DC United Academy system, was given a homegrown contract, had a decent first year, maybe as like an 18 year old or so. I have it on very good authority that a German Bundesliga team wanted him from DC United after that first season, made an offer and the deal was torpedoed. And then, you know, finally, when this whole shift of posture from the league and its franchises changed, they ended up agreeing to selling Chris Durkin to Sintroiden in Belgium. I think the fee, reported fee, is approximately $1 million. And like you're saying, so Richmond Kickers had him for a while before he went to DC United, right? Taylor, do you know how long? I don't know exactly how long, but he played his whole youth career at Richmond yeah. Kickers until he went to DC United. Oh, so he was never, he was never in the DC United Academy at all? He was for maybe Three, one or two years. Okay. Okay. I think the point stands. Yes. That mm -hmm. it sucks that Richmond Kickers has to, you know, it's been three years since he went to, to Belgium. So that's pretty yeah. wild. It's been a long time and 
it just shows the whole process that local teams have to go through just to get this money that they're yeah. supposed to get. And frankly, it, they're probably going to have to do a judgment call on a case-by-case basis, whether to even pursue it, because it depends how long the player was there for. And also it depends on how successful that transfer was. It's one thing if you're Christian Pulisic or Weston McKinney or Tyler Adams or these big, big time players where the transfer fees are huge, that drives how big of a windfall, you know, the youth clubs actually get. If it's a small time mm-hmm. player, you're basically not going to get that much money in return from the solidarity mechanism. So a club might say, you know what, it's not even worth pursuing the legal fees and all these sorts of things. The more important factor is the training compensation, because if Durkin, for instance, was at Richmond Kickers for five years and he goes to a top European league, then yeah, that could end up being a quarter million dollars that Richmond Kickers is owed. And then it makes sense. Okay, if we have to spend 50K or 100K on legal fees and a battle and all this stuff, well, I guess we'll end up getting 100 or 150K in our pocket. Exactly. And going into that is how long has the player been there? Yeah. The organization who is supposed to track that is U.S. Soccer. And they're just now putting together a program that keeps track of and organizes every player in the United States, their player passport, which is the official document that says how long a player has been at this club, how long they've been at that club, which will make it much easier to figure out how much a team is supposed to get paid in training compensation. I recently received a player passport from U.S. Soccer. I played at Real Cal my entire life going up until my senior year of high school. Player passport did not include any of that. It yeah. included my first year at LA Galaxy Academy from then on, and that's it. Yeah. Wild, isn't it? That's crazy. <laughs> crazy. And there's just so much to this story. And how convenient and interesting that the youth club was taken out of that player passport or is not included in the player passport. Oh, but an MLS franchise, let's make sure that those records are intact there. Exactly. It just goes into what you said earlier, how MLS and U.S. soccer, they're pretty much one and the same. Sure, sure. Um, Taylor, if you allow me to pull on this thread a little bit more, because I think it's important. With everything that you've just described and learned about this economic mechanism, a lot of people in the United States, fans and even the media, believe that this is a remedy for pay to play. And it absolutely is not, okay? And so let me explain. One is that the obvious reason is that there's just not enough money circulating in this mechanism to make you know all youth clubs free or even lower club fees at all. Because like how we were mentioning, there are only a handful or a dozen or maybe say, fine, say 50 players, Taylor, who are, Christian Pulisics, you see, uh, from American soccer. And the reality is there's only like three guys that are on like Christian Pulisic sort of European level, okay? But let's just say that there's 50 of these players out there, okay? Americans, big time American players. That's only 50 windfalls, financial windfalls that go to maybe 50 different clubs in the US. 
right? Or 40 different clubs in the U.S. because of the, having developed those guys. How many clubs are in the U.S., Taylor? There's an enormous amount of clubs. 99.9% of clubs in the U.S. are not ever going to develop a Christian Pulisic or a Weston McKinney or a Tyler Adams or an Alex Menders or any of these guys. And so the vast majority of the clubs aren't going to get anything from this. So they still have to make ends meet. So they still have to do pay to play. If that makes sense, there's more to it, but I think that already gets the message across. This doesn't solve a damn thing. No, definitely gets the point across. It will never take care of the whole thing. It will never reach every single club in the United States. It's just a small facet. Yeah, tiny slice and the money isn't even that big anyways. So let's say it's Christian Pulisic. Okay, maybe if Real SoCal developed Christian Pulisic, maybe they would have, through the mechanism, in total, maybe let's say they get to seven figures of income. Let's say they get a million bucks or something. A million bucks is peanuts. That's, I mean, I don't want to say it's nothing. It, It helps for sure, but that's not going to convert Real SoCal in a free-to-play club, and that's not going to convert Real SoCal into lowering its club fees throughout its entire system. This is just no chance. You know, Maybe a million bucks, depending on how you want to utilize it, can go into a scholarship fund that could help certain families or certain players or do certain things. But maybe it'll also go into new facilities or maybe it'll go into, I don't know, coaching, education. It's not going to solve pay-to-play, Taylor, even if you develop Christian Pulisic. And the million bucks doesn't last forever either. It goes away. No, it would not last forever. And one article I was reading said, if you can pay for your kid to play, then right now you should. Yeah. Right now, if you can afford it economically right now you should be paying for your child to play soccer because there are many families who can't afford it they're the ones who need the help they're the ones who need the scholarships the reduced fees and this is the talent section that we're missing right now in u.s soccer there are many families of color many families in low-income areas that their kids are athletic their kids are smart they simply just don't have the money to play soccer. Totally. Again, I, and I hate, I hate to beat the drum, but it's a reality. The, the only solution at scale is promotion and relegation because that gives Real SoCal the incentive or clubs, youth clubs across the country the incentive to develop players and minimize the filtering out of that low socioeconomic demographic because they cannot afford due to this new business world that is promotion relegation. They cannot afford to say, ah, you know what? You can't pay. You're really talented. You're amazing. You could probably be a pro, but you can't pay. So no thanks. They can't do that. They have to have it. Good stuff, T. What else? What else, man? You may have come across articles also where there's an argument that says, hey, F the, F the clubs, F the youth clubs, you know, parents are paying for their kids to be there. Why should the club get any more money? Have you come across that or no, that argument? I haven't come across that, but there's something I was thinking about because these parents most likely, unless they're playing at an MLS club or something like that, 
pretty much every club requires the parent to pay for their child. So why should this club be getting training compensation fees? Yeah, I understand the argument. I just think it's misplaced. And the reason it's, it's potentially misplaced, I believe it's because there's, there's this overarching animosity towards anybody, quote unquote, making money in soccer, which is really weird. Yes, it's kind of like there's this animosity that coaches get paid or, or there's this belief that coaches are making a shit ton of money or DOCs are making a shit ton of money or youth clubs are making a shit ton of money at other people's expense, at the family's expense, at the kid's expense. For me, it's very strange because I'm on this side of the fence and I see, for example, the amount of work that coaches put into coaching. It extends well beyond the training grounds and the games on the weekend. It's almost like a full-time job. It consumes your life and you're basically making no money. So for an average coach here in Southern California and coaching an average club team might make, I don't know, a thousand bucks a month for a team. Okay. Let's say you have two or three teams. Let's say you have three teams. So if you have three teams, it's a full-time gig at that point. I'm literally, you're putting in 40 hours a week. Okay. Yeah. So you're making 3000 bucks a month, Taylor. That's $36,000 a year. That's poverty level stuff. And we have people mad that, oh, coaches are making all this money or making money off kids. What are you fucking talking about? What are we talking about here? They're working their dicks off and, you know, considering whether they can buy this Coca-Cola or, you know, drink out of the water fountain. What are we talking about? And with respect to the clubs, the youth clubs being greedy and making money and all that stuff, who's fucking getting rich off this? Nobody's getting rich off youth soccer. You know, your, your DOC that you know very well and is a good friend of ours as well, he's not fucking living in no mansion. He made a living, uh, you know, doing soccer. And that's awesome. But it was just a living. It's nothing luxurious. And furthermore, why should coaches not get paid? They're working. They're mm -hmm. doing a job. They're providing a service. They're like teachers, okay? But in this realm, it's a sport, okay? It's not, you're not teaching math or English, but nonetheless, it's a human activity and you are facilitating or teaching things about this human activity. Yeah, these coaches are teaching how to be a part of a team, how to interact with other people, how to be a good person. And I grew up around three Cal coaches my whole life. And mm -hmm. pretty much all of them had full-time jobs that they worked during the day. And at night they would go and train their teams. And on the weekend they would go coach the games. But during the week, they always had their full-time job to come back to during the day. You, you have to, otherwise you're basically poverty level. Very few people really make a decent, and it's not great, but a decent living maybe in soccer here in the States. But it's really strange, this feeling, this, this anger towards money and youth soccer. I mean, there are bills to pay too. I just have to pay for fields. They have to pay for lights. They have to pay for the janitorial stuff that, that occurs there. They have to pay for coaches. They have to pay for uniforms they have to pay league fees they have to pay for i mean the list is on in the budget there's a budget taylor so mm -hmm. how are they going to make the books balance you have to get the money from somewhere and since they don't have a professional team you have to do pay to play 
And another thing to think about with that is this country, the United States, this population of over 300 million, a place like Spain or a place like England, where there are already like seven tiers of professional football, their population is not nearly the same. They don't have nearly the same amount of kids who want to play soccer and you don't have to pay for all these kids who, who just don't exist. In this country, there's a huge population and it was just difficult, difficult to pay for all of it. Yeah, man, you have to charge. The money has to come from somewhere. If you'll, if you'll allow me again, and we'll stick with Real SoCal because it, we're just going to use that as the, as the youth club frame, right? Imagine Real SoCal has a pro team. Again, it doesn't matter. You don't have to be in MLS. You could be in the third tier. So long as it's promotion relegation, okay? If it's closed, this doesn't really work. Imagine there was promotion relegation and Real SoCal has a team in the third tier. What is it now? USL League One, I think they call it, right? It's the second tier of USL. It creates a true club atmosphere as well because all of the youth players or a significant percentage of the youth players at the club will want to aspire to one day maybe play for the pro team. And two, them and their families will go to the stadium. Yes, it may not be an LAFC-like stadium because you're a third tier and you have a lower budget. Maybe it's something like Orange County Stadium. Yeah, mm -hmm. holds whatever, four or 5,000 people. It's awesome, you know, but imagine a whole bunch of the Real SoCal families going there as their kids grow up through the club. So somebody like you, who is now out of youth soccer and a pro, you would have a greater sense of belonging to that club. I know you do already, but it would be that much more because you were always going as a kid to the pro games of Real SoCal, you see? And so when you're done with football, I could totally see you and your future kids or whatever going to the stadium and watching and really feeling the colors of Real SoCal. But that's gone, you see? So when, when you're done with football, Taylor, there's, there is no more Real SoCal for you. That's a memory. It's in the past. It's over. But if they had a pro team, it's not over. Exactly. Exactly. I could bring my kids to the game. I could support. I could raise them, supporting those colors, going to those games, telling them about the club I used to play at. But right now, those stories are just of me as a kid playing youth soccer. Yeah, and, and nobody cares. <laughs> nobody, <laughs> it's, it's wild. It's, it's just so connected. It's so connected. I just want to get the message across that promotion relegation is so much more than merely, oh, yeah, I know what that is. It's like the lower three teams go down and the top three teams go up, and that's what promotion relegation is, right? No, it has all of these ramifications associated with it, all of these positives. It, it is an open ecosystem versus, yeah, versus a closed one, T. It's a personal topic because I think there's, it's a moral question. It's a question of morality. So everybody who's mad about youth soccer costing money, pay to play or whatever, well, guess what? You should be thinking about promotion relegation. That is the issue. If you mm -hmm. think it's wrong that kids have to pay to play, great. Your fight needs to be about promotion relegation and bringing that about in American soccer. Well, that's it for today, guys. Thank you for listening. A reminder for coaches, you can get both the free and premium coaching programs at 343coaching.com. Don't let anyone tell you your teams can't win by playing dominant possession-based football. 
while also developing individual players to the highest levels. Nonsense. We've proved it at every single level, and so have hundreds of serious member coaches across the country. Now that we've moved on to the pro level, we're delivering everything we've learned in the program. Don't wait and continue delaying getting on a proven path. And parents, 343masterclass.com is where you want to go to get a working compass for navigating the American soccer landscape with your player. It's pretty bad out there, but let our experience guide you. And if you're interested in a solution that blends both academics and soccer, there's even the opportunity to do this in Europe as well. To learn more, visit acceleratorschool.com. Until next time, cheers everyone and keep building.